turn in, in a Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be spending a lot of time there this morning. And um, it was Tuesday, June 6, 1944. It was 6.30 in the morning. 5,000 ships carrying 160,000 Allied troops began landing on the beaches in southern France. Uh, this is an event that we know as, as D-Day. And um, they say that some of the men that survived uh, the D-Day invasion, they remember distinctly hearing messages that were being broadcast on the ships that they were on as they were, as they were getting ready to, to exit those ships. They, they heard these recordings that reminded them that there was no turning back, that if we have to shed our blood on the beaches, if we have to give our life uh, for this, uh, there's no, absolutely no turning back. They also had recordings that just kind of talked about uh, fighting for one another, fighting for your freedom, fighting to save your ship. And if you had any strength left, you would fight to save yourself. Historians say that in a 15-minute period when that invasion began, 2,500 American soldiers died in 15 minutes. And as they were leaving the ships, they would often have to crawl over uh, the, the dead bodies of their fellow soldiers as they were entering into the beach. Now, I share that with you just, just to try to make a point that basically says this, that those soldiers that day were under no delusion that they were going to the beach for a holiday, you know? They were under no delusion uh, that it was going to be a vacation day that day. They understood that, that um, they were going to face a very determined enemy. And uh, the chances of them dying were very, very high. They, they knew that going in. And I think that is what the Apostle Paul is trying to really impress upon us in this last section of Ephesians chapter 5. What he does is he really lifts the curtain and helps us see what's going on behind the scenes. What we normally don't see. He's trying to help us to see that you and I face a battle that is no less stringent than the ones that those allied forces faced uh, in 1944. They, they faced, uh, we face an enemy that's no less fierce than the ones that they faced on that day. And I think that is the point of Ephesians chapter 6. And so we're doing this series called Man Up, and we're really asking the question, what does it mean to be a godly man? We're not after toxic masculinity, we're after a godly masculinity. We're asking the question, what does God's word say about being a man? And what, is that, what does that manhood look like? And that's what we're looking at today. We've been talking about that God has called us as men to be leaders, to be lovers, to be providers, to be protectors, to be priests, and to be prophets. That's what he's called us to be. Now, the challenge today, and we've mentioned this over, over the past few weeks, that a lot of men are struggling today. Men are struggling relationally, emotionally, physically, mentally, struggling in every single way. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that men don't realize that they're in a battle. I think, I think a lot of men today show up and they're going to the beach with their towel and the rubber ducky instead of their armor. You know, they think life is a playground instead of a battleground. That life is all about a vacation rather than a war. And what happens is men get picked off. The enemy just has a field day with them. Because, because we're living with the wrong perspective about what life is all about. And I think that's what 
this chapter, particularly the last half of the chapter, is all about. Now, you remember our theme verse is from 1 Corinthians 16. You don't have to turn there, but it's basically this, where Paul's summing up the letter to the Corinthians, and he says this, I want you to be watchful. I want you to stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be to done in love. I think what that is, that entire verse, is a picture of what godly masculinity is. And in this passage, he tells them, in that verse, he tells them, I want you to stand firm in the faith. And I think the question is, what does it mean for you and I to stand firm in the faith? What does that really look like? Practically, what does that look like? Well, what's interesting is in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul answers that specific question. He talks about what it means to stand firm in the faith. And then he gives us some equipment that we can use to help us in our standing. So what we're going to do is we're going to read verses 10 uh, all the way through 18. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God today. Paul writes this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is God's word for God's people, and you may be seated. Now, I don't know if you mentioned, if you saw this, but, but he mentions three times, I think at least three times, the need for us to stand firm. He talks about to withstand. He talks about standing firm, therefore. And there's the whole passage, the whole emphasis here is answering this question, what does it mean for you and I to stand firm? I think what he does is he answers three critical questions for you and for me. He answers, first of all, the question, who are we standing firm against? And then he gives us the why answer. Why do we have to stand firm against him? And then he tells us how to stand firm. And that's what I kind of want to walk us through uh, this morning. So let's look at who we are standing firm against. Go back and look at verse 10 and let's, uh, let's dig this out a little bit. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now let me just kind of pause there just parenthetically let me say he's not calling you to stand firm in you. He's not calling you to be strong in you. We don't, we don't have the strength to do this. This is not our strength we're standing in. He very clearly says that the way that we stand firm is by standing in the strength of another. And that other is Jesus. All right, but notice what he says. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the 
of the devil. He's identified who our enemy is. He identifies who we are battling against. He says, the schemes of the devil. Now notice in verse 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now let's look at that for a minute. He's not saying he doesn't wrestle against flesh and blood. He does wrestle against flesh and blood. We all wrestle against flesh and blood. What he's saying is we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood. Let me explain what I mean by that. There, there were a lot of people that, that flogged Paul, that tried to imprison him, that tried to stone him, that tried to kill him. He wrestles against flesh and blood, just as you and I do. And what he's saying is this, when evil manifests itself in the world, and you see it manifest it through war, through poverty, through rape, through murder, you know, through discrimination, through abuse. When you see that kind of evil manifest itself, it manifests itself through flesh and blood. But there's something invisible driving it. And that invisible something is the devil. That's what he's saying. He's completely describing that. Look, look at what he says. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he, what he does is he's taking all of these descriptors and he's trying to help us to see this is real. He's trying to get us to take it seriously. And that's why he uses all of that to describe what's going on that we normally can't see. And so in other words, the point of this is, is this, that the devil is real, church. That demons are real. That there is an invisible spiritual realm where there's evil present behind the scenes. And you and I wake up and we walk into that every single day. And he wants us to see the seriousness of the battle that is taking place all around us. Now, it's at this point that maybe some of you kind of push back on me and you're like, oh, man, this is one of those weird churches, you know. And yes, we, we, we teach the scripture. And I'm going to have the ushers come forward at this time and been, you know, start handing out poison snakes to every person right now. Uh, no, you don't do that in the middle of the service. You always do it at the end of the service, right? I'm just kidding on that. Seriously, what he's talking about here is this, that there's a realm that's not visible always where the enemy is working and that he's working to influence us and to pull us down and not just merely pull us down, but to destroy us. And what Paul is saying is that real, that realm is real. The devil is real. That entity is real in our life. And not only did Paul believe that, but Jesus did. You study through the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' ministry came in direct conflict with the demons that were trying to stop him. That's why Jesus says what characterizes my ministry is setting the captives free because that presupposes people are captive to someone. Who is that someone? Well, it's the devil. So Paul picks up where Jesus leaves off and throughout Ephesians, he describes the believer's life as a life of struggle, as a life of battle, as a life of warfare against spiritual dark forces in a realm that we can't always see. And that's why he gives us a list of weapons, which we're going to 
we're going to be looking at in just a minute. Now, I want to share a quote with you from C.S. Lewis. You've heard this one probably before if you've been in church uh, for any length of time, but it's, it's really good. He, he says this, when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take him altogether too seriously or they don't take him seriously enough. Now, maybe you know a Christian that takes the devil and demons too seriously. Maybe you know somebody like that. And it's like every inconvenience of their day is an attack from a demon on their life, right? And, uh, you know, and it could look like the internet goes down and you're not able to play Fortnite. That you are getting attacked by the devil right there. You know what I'm saying? That's how we, that's how we look at it. Or we look at it like I'm 15 minutes late, this traffic's so bad, the devil's just attacking me today. Or worse yet, you show up at Chick-fil-A at noon and there are no parking places. And it's like, devil, I rebuke you in the name of I will get, I will eat my Christian chicken today in the name of Jesus, right? And so, and I think we all know people like that. And what Lewis, what Lewis is saying is we're out of balance. We're, we're too preoccupied with that. We're looking behind, we're looking behind every tree for Satan. But there are, there's another group that commits a very dangerous flaw or error, and that is we just ignore him altogether. We just ignore him altogether. We get up in the morning, we go to work, we go to school. Oh, it's good. I don't need to pray. I don't need to, I don't need to read God's word. I got it. I don't need to worry about the enemy. I don't need to be worrying about getting attacked or oppressed by the enemy. I don't need to worry about that. And what Lewis is saying is that is an equally dangerous error where we just kind of act like it's a day at the beach today. Hey, let's grab our towel and rubber ducky and go with it today. And that is a serious mistake. Church, here's the thing. You don't get anything else I say. You need to get this. Satan doesn't care if you believe in him or not. He's not after your recognition. He just wants your destruction. That's it. That's just it. And if he can pull you down, that accomplishes his goal for you. So men, I think we have to understand that we can't just get up and walk into the battle without our armor on, without realizing who we're fighting against. I think that's Paul's point in this. Interestingly enough, I'll say this. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not real. You know that? Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not real. I was reading about a doctor. His name was Ignaz Simmelweis. He lived during the 1800s. And believe it or not, in the 1800s, for most of the 1800s, medical uh, physicians, medical doctors in that day, rarely, if ever, washed their hands. They believed, they mistakenly believed that sickness and disease in the human body was caused by something being wrong with the human body. They believed that their hands were predominantly clean. So what doctors would do in hospitals in the, the mid-1800s is they would be operating on a dead body in one room, leave that room and go and deliver a baby in the next room without washing their hands. And they did this over and over again because the prevailing wisdom of the day was there's nothing on our hands to be concerned about. So Simmelweis stumbled onto a theory that we now call germ theory. 
And Semmelweis started to have a hunch that there's more going on than we can really see on our hands. That there is infection and bacteria, there are microorganisms, there are germs on our hands that cause sickness and cause disease. And so he had the interns who were working for him begin washing their hands in a bowl of chlorinated water and they began to see the health rates of their patients increase. And he stood up in a medical conference one day and said to a a room full of doctors, he said, gentlemen, whatever you do, please wash your hands. And you know what? They laughed him off. It took another 20 years for it to be accepted, really because of the work of Louis Pasteur, that, yeah, we better start washing our hands if we're serious about health and healing. And so I share that with you to say, church, just because we can't see it doesn't mean it is not real. So there you have it. That is the who that we're standing firm against. Here's the the second question. Well, why do we have to stand firm? Well, let's look at verse 11. Notice what Paul says. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, notice that word schemes. In the Greek, that word is methodia. It's the word we get method from. And it means strategies. It means a plan. That's what schemes means. And so he's, the reason why you and I have to stand firm against the devil is because he has strategies. He has schemes. He has a plan of attack that he uses against you. Did you know that? Like he's got, he's got a case study on you and he knows where you're weak. He knows where you're vulnerable. He knows where your struggles are. And guess what? That's what he's going with. Now think about that. Men, think with me just for a minute. If you were attacking you, how would you attack you? How would you do it? Would it be getting you discouraged over what your kids do? Would it be attacking you through something on your iPad screen or your computer screen? Would it be worry related to work? How would you attack you? You probably have a sense of that, of how he attacks you. Now, I, uh, I looked it up and we are about 113 days away from uh, the time the Colts kick off. Praise be to God. Let me just tell you. This is the hardest time of the year for me because uh, it's trying to endure um, until football season starts. But let me just ask a question. I mean, think about this. What are the Colts coaching staff, what are they doing right now? What do you think? You think they're on a beach somewhere sipping lemonade? No, you know, Monday through Friday, they're breaking down game film, Right? They're breaking down game film of every opponent they're going to play this fall. And you know what they're looking for? They're, we- they're looking for weaknesses. They're looking for vulnerabilities. They're looking for tendencies. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to develop a scheme, a method of attacking that team. You know why? Because they want to win. And by the way, they're going to be really good this fall. So uh, at least that's what my cousin says. So uh, anyway. Now, your life's no different. My life's no different. He's got game film on you. He knows what he's going to do to you. 
the thing is, we're not thinking about it. So we become weak and vulnerable, and he picks us off because we are getting outwitted by Satan. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. I pulled this right out of a passage. It says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan because he's very cunning. We are not ignorant of his designs. And I think a lot of men are struggling today because they're ignorant of his designs. And they're getting played like a fiddle because the enemy is outwitting them and outsmarting them. And they fall right into the trap of the, of the traps that he sets. Now, go back and ver- look at verse 11. Let me just show you this for a minute. Uh, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you know the word devil in Greek is diabolos? And we get the word diabolical from that word. Diabolos means to lie and to slander. That gives you insight into his schemes. He doesn't do a whole lot. But what he does do is he lies to us and he slanders us. In fact, you could, you could kind of say it, I think you could say it this way, that his scheme against us is temptation and accusation. That's what he does. Temptation and accusation. Now, what is temptation? Temptation is when the enemy lies to you to try to get you to think more highly of yourself than you should so that you will do something that you shouldn't do. That's temptation. He's going to influence you to think that you're better than you are, or you're more important than you are, or just to think highly of yourself so that you'll do something you really shouldn't do. That's temptation. Accusation is the opposite. What he does with accusation is he influences us to think more lowly of ourselves to get us to do something we shouldn't do. So really two things, temptation and accusation. Now, I, uh, I'm working through a book by Thomas Brooks. He, he was a 17th century Puritan, and it's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And it is, it's, a, it's classic, and it is, it's, it's a deep book. You don't just sit down and read through this book um, at one sitting. You just got to take it slow. But he talks about ways that the enemy tempts us. And he talks about some ways that the enemy accuses us. And I'm just going to share some of those with you. by, By far not all, but let me just share some of these with you. This is how Satan tempts us. Thomas Brooks says, by showing you the bait and hiding the hook. He shows us the bait And he hides the hook. What he does is he shows us the short-term pleasure of sin and then he hides or he blinds us to the thought of the long-term misery that that sin causes. So there's a lady at work and she's flirting with you and you're married. What What does Satan do? He shows you the bait, but he hides the hook. He's not going to show you the destruction and the grief and the pain that having an affair is going to cause. He's going to hide that from you. What he's going to do is he's going to focus your mind and your attention on the short-term pleasure of it. That's what Thomas Brooks is saying. That is temptation. Another thing that Thomas Brooks says is by rationalizing sin as virtue. 
He will want to influence us in such a way where we categorize our sin as something virtuous. And we say, well, you know what? I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not an alcoholic because I can quit at any time. And so that's rationalizing it as virtue. Another thing that he will tell us, according to Thomas Brooks, is by overstressing the mercy of God. He will say, he will say well, this is what we say when he gets us to overstress the mercy of God. Well, I'm just going to go do it now, and then I'll ask for forgiveness later. That's overstressing the mercy of God. Another one is by getting you to compare one part of your life to another part of your life. And you say, well, I go to church. I mean, I'm a good person, but I'm going to do this one thing. You see that? It's like a mafia man saying, well, I do kill people, uh, but I'm really good to my mom. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like that. Those are all temptations. There are a lot of other devices that he uses, but those are temptations. Now, what about accusation? Now, this is where I struggle. This is where I'm vulnerable. So this is what my game film shows. But when you think about accusation, how does the enemy attack us there? He, he usually attacks us in, through accusation, through getting us to focus on our sin rather than our Savior. He wants us to dwell on our failures rather than on God's victory in our life. And so he lies to us. We believe the lies and we end up giving in to despair and resignation in life. And he steals our joy because we're believing the lies. And let me share some of these from Thomas Brooks. He says this, one way he accuses us is by obsessing over past sins that have done damage that cannot be undone. Because you know when we sin, it causes damage, consequences that you can't go back and undo that. And so what the enemy does is he, he causes us to obsess over those past sins and the damage that we do. And then and we obsess over it and we say to ourselves as men, I'm such a bad father. I'm such a bad husband. I'm such a bad guy. And what is he doing? He's causing you to live in the past and not in the truth of who you are. And, and, and it just destroys us. And it leads us to despair. Robert Murray McShane, he was a Scottish pastor, and he said, he said this, and this is so helpful, I think. He said, for every one look at yourself, you need 10 looks at Jesus. For every time you look to yourself, you look introspectively, you better get your head up and look in Christ 10 more times. Because the enemy will come, and he will, he will, he will unleash a load of accusations on us. And so what I mean by looking to Christ is by looking to the truth of who he is, that he loves you, that he died for you, that his mercies are new every morning for you, that he's got a plan for you, that goodness and mercy will follow you, that greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. That's what I'm talking about focusing on. But what happens is the enemy blinds us to those things and causes us to fixate and to focus on ourselves. Another way that he accuses us as Christians is to make us, as Christians, believe that the troubles that we're going through are really punishments for sin in our life. 
He convinces us that the troubles and difficulties in our life are really God punishing us for something we did way back when. And I'm just here to tell you, church, Jesus was punished in your place. There's no more punishment going on. And that's the truth of the gospel if you're in Christ. And so you, you got to know that or he is going to play you like a fiddle. He will. Brooks says he will make us believe that inner struggles and feelings that we have, real Christians wouldn't have those. So, you know, as a Christian, you struggle with same-sex attraction. That is real. And what does the enemy do? He just pours it on. Well, you know what? You're not a real Christian if you have those kind of feelings. Or if you're not married and you have opposite sex attraction. That's called lust, right? Well, he makes us believe a real Christian wouldn't have that. Why are you struggling with it? Well, it's because you're not loved by God. And you've not, you're not accepted by God. So there's, that just gives you a little bit of a flavor. Here's the question I have for you. What schemes does he use against you? How does he attack you? You want to be aware of those. Jesus says the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly, all right? So that is why you and I better take a stand or he is going to move us all over the place, all right? Now, how do you do this? How do we put this into practice? That's the question. All right, well, let's look at, let's look at what it says. Go back and uh, let's look at verse, verse 13. And we're going to talk about how to stand firm. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. You see that word stand? In the evil day. What's the evil day? Every day you wake up. It just is. As long as the enemy is allowed to roam, as long as you're battling sin within you, which we all are until the day we die. As long as we live in a fallen world, that's an evil day. So every single day, you've got to put on the full armor of God to stand. That's the key. So if you and I are going to stand firm, we need the whole armor of God. Now, what you may not know is the Apostle Paul is writing this from prison. He might be chained to a Roman soldier. He might be in a prison cell. He's writing this letter to the, to the church at Ephesus. This letter is going to be circulating throughout all the churches uh, in Asia Minor. So he's writing because he knows he's going to influence them. And he's thinking, what do I need to tell them? How can I, how can I help them stand firm? And he comes up because every preacher is looking for a good illustration. You know what I mean? So he, he's looking at this Roman soldier and he's thinking, this guy's covered in armor. I, guess what? I'll tell him to put on the whole armor of God. And what he does is he begins to list six or seven things, pieces of armor that you and I need if we're going to stand firm. So let's just, let's just walk through them. Look at verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. All right, so let's look at the belt of truth for a minute. Just think with me on that. The reason why the belt of truth is so important is you don't want to go into battle with your pants falling down. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, how many of you want that to happen, right? No, you need a belt. You got to have a belt right in the core, right in the middle of who you are. And the interesting thing about the belt of truth is all of the armor and all of your weapons are anchored to the belt of truth. They kind of hold the whole thing together. So you need a belt of truth. And Paul is saying is the way that you stand firm, it starts with a belt of truth wrapped around your waist. 
Now, church, I don't know if you figure this out, but we live in a society. We live in a culture. We live where movies and television shows and magazines tell us that truth is relative. That there's no such thing as absolute truth. And I just want to say, are you absolutely sure about that? Because that sure sounds absolute to me. And we live in a culture that says there's no such thing as right and wrong or good and bad. And as Christians, we say, no, that's not what the word says. The word says there is right and there is wrong. There's a right way to treat a woman. There's a wrong way to treat a woman. There's a right way to raise kids and there's a wrong way to raise kids. And interestingly enough, truth is, is more of a who rather than a what. You guys know what I'm talking about? Because Jesus said what? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Do you know what that tells me? That ultimate truth comes from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from a, from a culture that changes like the wind. Does that make sense? Let me just put it to you this way. The worst thing Oprah Winfrey ever did to the United States, to America, is to tell men and women to follow their heart. It's absolutely wrong. Do you know what the word says? You know what the truth is about my heart? My heart is sinful and selfish. I dare not follow it. I need something outside of myself to follow. I need something eternal and permanent. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God, the word of truth lasts forever. So when I think about the belt of truth, I think about the center point of my life. I think about my core identity as a person, not based in my performance, not based in my achievements, not based in my good looks, not based in my W-2 statement, not based in any of that. I need something that lasts longer than all of that. I need to base it on the truth of who God says I am. And I need to put that in the very center of my life. Does that make sense? That's the belt of truth. All right, look at verse 14 again. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what is the breastplate of righteousness? You know what a Roman breastplate looks like? Okay, it looks like um, it's shaped for perfect pecs and six-pack abs. That's what it is. Have you seen one of those things? And when you put it on, all of a sudden, guess what? You've got perfect pecs and you've got six-pack abs. That's what it looks like. And it hides all of the wiggling and jiggling going on beneath that breastplate. You know what I'm saying? So it seems like to me, as I kind of think about what he's trying to say here, he, he's really trying to say this. He's trying to send us a message that we're not trusting in our righteousness. We're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we need to put on the breastplate of his righteousness. That breastplate hides all of the love handles and the jiggling going on. And it makes me, it makes me look strong in him. So practically what that means is when God sees his sons and daughters, what he sees is he sees, he sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you. You are positionally righteous in Christ. That's how he views you. 
And what he does is he gives us the word of God. He gives us the power of prayer. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the church family so that we're not just positionally righteous, but we become actually righteous over time as we grow in him. Does that make sense? So I'm trusting in not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. I think that is the breastplate of righteousness. Now look at the next one. Verse 15. He says, and... As shoes for your feet, put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. So he's, he's really talking about another offensive weapon here. So normally when you'll hear a Bible teacher preach this, they'll say the only offensive weapon in this list is the sword. That's not really true. I think the shoes around your feet are offensive weapons. Because what do the shoes enable you to do? They enable you to advance, don't they? They enable you to take a step. And what you're doing is you're ready to share the gospel, the gospel that brings peace. And one way to overcome the enemy's attack in your life is the word of testimony, the word that you speak to other people about what Jesus has done for you. When you speak that, it has power over the devil and the demonic in your life, and they flee. They flee at that. And it brings God's presence to you. It brings God's peace to you. And, it, and there's, no, there's no fear in it. You're at peace because you've been transformed by the love of God. And that's a huge part of what you need to put on every single day, a readiness to share the gospel. You know, what I've learned is people, people love to talk about things that they love. Have you noticed that? So after service, ask me a question about college football. And I love to talk about that. I love college football. I love to talk politics. And I'm kind of sad because we can't talk politics anymore because we're so afraid of offending one another, you know. So, you, so that, that subject is taboo, but I love talking politics. You know, I love talking theology. You're going to love, you're going to talk about what you love. So if you love Jesus, you're going to talk about him. You're going to put those shoes on of the readiness of the gospel. All right, so let's look at the next one. Uh, verse 16, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, this is really good, church. This, this, one's, this, is, this is really good because this is what you do with the accusation. Think about it this way. What does the enemy do? He accuses us. He condemns us. He says, you're a terrible father. You stink as a husband. Think of all the pain you've caused your family. Think of all the stupid things that you've done in your life. And I'm telling you, he just pours it on. And he just heaps on coals of condemnation. In fact, this, Paul describes it as fiery darts. He just aims them right at you. Now, what do you do with that? He can put thoughts in your mind. What do you do with that? How do you handle it? Do you just do a little ninja jujitsu there with that? Is that what you do? No. You don't do that. Do you, do you just get into a conversation with Satan and just try to reason with him to kind of let up on you? No, you don't do that. You don't use logic against him. What you do is you use the word of God against him. You put up your shield of faith and you go back to what the scripture says about you, that you are a son or daughter of God, that you are loved by God, 
that God is always with you, that he would, he would never leave you or forsake you. You stand firm with the shield of faith as those accusations and lies come barreling into your life and you stand behind it. It's not a feeling, church. You don't wait till you, you feel this. You just stand on the truth of who it is, of who God is and what the word says. That is, in all circumstances, take the shield of faith. Look at verse 17. He adds, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, why is your helmet so important? Well, it protects your mind. It protects your brain. It protects how you think. Church, a lot of us have wrong thoughts about God. We have wrong thoughts about other people. And we have wrong thoughts about ourselves. And the enemy just jerks us around like we're on his chain. And this is where we've, this is where we've got to follow Paul's challenge in Philippians 4 where he talks about, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is honorable, whatever is God-glorifying, think on those things. Think on those things. So as a thought comes to your mind, you need to ask yourself, is that thought pure? Is that thought noble? Is that thought God glorifying? Is that thought God honoring? Then if it's not, then let it go. Don't dwell on it. That is the helmet of salvation. Really, the helmet of salvation is the entire, it's kind of the entire gospel. You're just putting the gospel over your head is really what you're doing. And then he says this, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, clearly that is, that is an offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. And the thing that I would say about this is that your ability to counter the lies of the enemy, his temptations and his accusations, your ability to counter that is directly proportional to your knowledge of the word of God. And a lot of guys will say, well, you know, I just don't know the Bible that well. And I, I'm not a great reader. And, you know, I just don't really know it that well. And you know what? The enemy gets that. And he's going to, he's going to come after that. And at some point, you've got to make a decision. I'm tired of getting beaten around by, by the enemy. And I'm going to live by the truth. And if I'm going to live by the truth, I've got to know the truth. That's where it starts. And so at some point, we got to dig in and say, we got to learn it. We got to read it. We got to memorize it. We got to study. We need, it, we need to saturate our lives with it. Does that make sense? Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and with all supplication. So what I like about this, and he doesn't, he doesn't really say that this is a weapon, but obviously it is. It is, it's, I think a lot of times we think this is the beginning. You know, we just begin with prayer and kind of cover the day with prayer, and then we stop praying. No, we, we don't stop praying. Church, you're praying all day long. You don't stop. Do you know why? Because God's always with you. And if he's walking you to class, and he's driving with you in the car to work, and he's helping you at home with the kids, what, whatever it is you're doing, Jesus is with you. Talk to him. And when the enemy shows up and he's throwing his garbage at you, then you need to talk to your heavenly father. That's called prayer. And that's why he says, pray at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. Supplication is just asking God to give you what you need. And that's, that's it. 
And so we're not, we're not, we're, we're not really trying, we're not fighting for a victory here. What we're doing is fighting from a victory that's already been won. And we just need to realize it in our life. So there you go. That's who you need to stand against. That's why you need to stand. And that is how you need to stand. So here's the question. How's the enemy going to come after you? And what, what step do you need to take today? Because he's coming. And all you have to do is say, you know what? Enough's enough. It's, a time, it's time for me to fight. It's time for me to get in the game. So let's, uh, let's, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. I want to close in a different way today. And I'm going to just ask, I just want to talk to the men in this room. And, and I'm, I want to ask you if, if you know the enemy has been accusing you and condemning you, that this is where he's been attacking you. And you want to just, you want to start walking in freedom from that attack. I want to invite you just to stand right where you are, because I just want to pray for you. He accuses you. He condemns you. He tells you you're a failure. He tells you you're absolutely no good. He tells you you can't overcome the past. He tells you your marriage is not going to get any better. He tells you all of that stuff. If that's, if that's how the card that he plays against you in one of those ways, just stand up. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I totally relate to this because this is where the enemy comes after me. And I thank you for the men that are standing in this room. And I ask God that, I ask you that you would just give them the grace to take one look at themselves, but 10 looks at you. That they would put on the gospel to shield them from the flaming darts of the enemy. And I ask this week that you would, you would give your blessing, that you would give victory in this area, that you would give wisdom, that you would help these men get traction in putting on the full armor of God. And that they would just defeat the lies of the enemy and stand true to who they are in you. So thank you for that. So men, you just stay standing. If you struggle in some area of temptation and the enemy comes after you on that side of the category and he's just trying to, he's trying to trip you up and tempt you, you just go ahead and stand up right where you are. And let me just pray for you. Very good. Anybody else? Just stand up just with temptation. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for these men that have stood just acknowledging that they want to be strong in you. They don't want to give in to temptation. And so God, I pray that your power, your Holy Spirit would just give them all that they need to see the truth of who you are and the truth of what sin does. And so God, I pray for all of our men that you would just help us to put on the gospel of grace and to walk in it every single day. And so we thank you for all of this. And we praise you and all of God's people said, amen. Now let's all stand together as we worship God.